Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, most of our podcasts, you know, deal with more of the agronomic side of the farming ecosystem, you know, growing more corn, more soybeans, protecting those crops. Today, we took a different route to the mechanized aspect of agriculture. And I know it hit close to home for both of us. You know, we both have some antique tractors of the green variety. So today was a good fit for both of us. Yeah, absolutely. We didn't really realize until we started talking about this topic that John Deere has a historical team that works for them. And today we spoke with Neil Dahlstrom, who is an archivist for John Deere. Yeah, absolutely. I think Neil's full title is the Branded Properties and Heritage Manager of the John Deere Archives. Neil's a three-time author with his most recent book being called Tractor Wars. We definitely had a great conversation with Neil about just how John Deere has always really been a part of the the American agricultural story, you know, since the 1800s. Yeah, and it's fascinating to learn how they went from John Deere building the plow that was so successful, moving into taking on tractors and, and other pieces of equipment. So let's just get right into the conversation with Neil. Welcome to the podcast, Neil. To kick things off here today, could you tell us a little bit about your background, your educational history, and what you're up to now? Yeah, my background is I've wanted to do something in history since I was a kid. I grew up watching Indiana Jones and wanted to be an archaeologist. I think that's kind of where it started. Spent a lot of time going to museums as a kid. I grew up in the Quad Cities, so we're two and a half, three hours from Chicago. I remember going to the Field Museum and even places like the Shedd Aquarium and, and just kind of um, museums were just always a draw for me. And I also remember watching a show on A&E called In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy, which is one of these mystery shows, you know, the pyramids and Bermuda Triangle right. and and those things. So I, I started my mornings before junior high with Leonard Nimoy every morning, um, kind of interested. And that led me to, to museums and archives. I, I studied history and classics at uh, Monmouth College in, in Illinois. I actually took two years of ancient Greek and um, got a job in the college archives. And it's a, a small liberal arts school, a thousand students at the time, but got my start there in, in, in the, the college archives, went to Eastern Illinois University, got a master's in historical administration, which is studying museums and historical societies and archives and did an assistantship with the Illinois State Archives. So by then I was very much on the path of professionally sitting in rooms, going through other people's things. But was just I was always drawn to 19th century American history. That was just always kind of a passion of, of mine. So that was from a subject perspective. That's that's where I wanted to be. So when you're in Monmouth, did you learn everything there is to learn about Wyatt Earp? That's his birthplace, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And his house is still there. And and to me, I just it was a shrine. I just thought it was, and it was just like owned by some person, and. Um, you know, I think they would do okay corral reenactments on occasion. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. But what you know, Lincoln world. came through. Yeah. I grew up in Monmouth, so yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I chuckled because I went to Monmouth because I wanted to go far away to college. I didn't want to go locally and I ended up in Monmouth an hour away from home. I thought that was really far away at the time. <laughs> so Neil, what are you up to now? Well, I'm I'm getting ready to celebrate my twenty first anniversary at John Deere. Oh, wow. Um, amazingly enough. And uh, I was hired as an archivist here. So I, after grad school, I actually got hired at a startup archive in Alexandria, Virginia. And uh, I was out there for two years. We, we lost some funding. I was looking for work. And a friend at John Deere told me that they were looking for an archivist. And I said, I 
have I know nothing about John Deere and I have no idea they had an archive. So it was it was completely random and kind of fluky. Um, I ended up coming and interviewing and, and, and getting the job and and uh, I'm today sitting sitting in my office in the archives, which is less than a mile from the house I grew up in. That is great. Yeah, and actually the the field across the street is where I grew up playing soccer. I never noticed that there was a building with a giant John Deere sign in front of it my entire childhood. <laughs> so, so what does an archivist do from day to day for John Deere? It's not what most people think. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is if you think of everything that a collector is interested in, archivists kind of do the opposite in a lot of ways. Um, meaning my, my job as, as the archivist is first and foremost, acquiring records acquiring artifacts that kind of tell the, the story of the evolution of John Deere. And, and that changes. Um, contemporary collecting today is, is mostly digital. We're not collecting, you know, handwritten records and, and manuscripts and, and, and photographs like we used to. So we kind of have the legacy collection, which is analog, um, you know, everything that is in print, uh, physical films, physical photographs from daguerreotypes to glass plate negatives to other forms of photos and then printed papers. Now that's that's all digital formats and things. So that's kind of the contemporary collecting side of things. And of course, you can't keep everything. So what do you keep and why? Uh, we call that appraisal, which is not a financial appraisal. It's, a, it's record appraisal. So that's the day-to-day of an archivist. And then there's the organization, the cataloging, building databases, building access models, who can access what. Um, and then what I think is one of the most challenging parts, um, which is that access. And that's not, Neil wants you to have access or not have access. It's, do we own the copyright to the asset? Did we hire someone to do voiceover and that contract expired after a year? So we no longer have permissions to provide that to somebody. That's a lot of the work of the archivist. Um, versus I, I think the perception is Neil gets to, to sit at a table and talk about old tractors all day. <laughs> um, I get to do that on occasion, but it's usually because somebody asked us something and we got to find an answer. And, and that's why also I, I often get called the John Deere historian and I kind of shy away from that word because the job of an archivist is not to know everything. It's to know what records contain certain types of information. So we're we're in the retrieval business. So all of that appraisal, cataloging, creating finding aids and inventories, um, adding metadata, tagging content is so when someone asks us a question, we can go retrieve the records or we can electronically pull the records. It's the archivist's job to then give it to you, the user, the requester. Your job is to do the research. Your job is to draw conclusions. I've, again, I think that's a little different than how people think of archives. Are, we're, we're facilitators. Of course, those, those lines blur because over time, when you've been doing it as long as me, you see a lot of things that a lot of other people don't get to see. You start reading conclusions other people make and saying, yeah, I don't know if I agree with that because I've been looking at this for 15 years and maybe I have a different perspective. And so for me, that's what's kind of led to some of the writing and some of the other things that I do, but it's distinct from my role as the archivist. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned that your job isn't necessarily to 
say no there everything there is to know about the old tractors or whatever it might be and that's kind of how a lot of positions have changed over the last 20 years i mean in the agronomy world preston and i don't have to know everything whereas you know 20 years ago if you went out to a farmer's field and they asked you a question it would be great if you already knew the answer and now we try to be up on those things but we also have the answers at our fingertips and a lot of it's about knowing where to find the answer in a fairly timely manner yeah, it's the same thing. I, I often just refer to it as forensics. It's um, it's like watching an episode of CSI and trying to figure out how to put the pieces together. And and when you do it historically, you may ask me a question. Well, when you do that, you're going to use current terminology. My job is I have to interpret that into what the terminology was in 1943 or 1870. And that could be the name of a machine form. It could be the name of um, of a division. Um, it could be figuring out, okay, well, you're asking this question. I know that department had a different name in 1945. That's the only way I can get to the records is if I can figure out the name of the department. Because the way we record information changes over time, um, even as simple as asking to look up the name of a person. Well, 75 years ago, there's not a single document in the John Deere archives where someone's first name was used. It was only an initial. So it doesn't help me in a search. Um, and so those are things that you got to cut. You just kind of figure out over time and have to work around. And, and that's where it's different than going, well, I can't really just do a keyword search. That's the first step. Actually, that's probably the third step for me. Um, but that gets me into records that I've got to still read and go through. And then that's going to lead me somewhere probably to an answer. Um, because neither one of us know how to properly ask the question yet. So, so it may take us an hour to scope that out. I'm kind of curious, are you part of a team? Is there a whole team of archivists and historians, so to speak, at John Deere? Or is, you know, you kind of a one-man crew? Definitely not a, a, a one-man one crew. And um, it, it kind of ebbs and flows over time. Our, our group has grown now because now the archives is, is part of the group that also manages like the John Deere Pavilion and the Tractor and Engine Museum, the John Deere Historic Site, the library's part of our team. Um, so we, we're doing a lot more, but we're also more highly integrated than we've ever been before. Um, so it's nice that I have someone sitting at the John Deere Pavilion who can do research in the archives before. We didn't do that before. Um, so that's where electronic rec records and digitizations changed a lot for us. So there's, there's fewer archivists, but there's, there's more people wearing 20 different hats that includes archives. So similar to everyone else's job, right? For sure. For my own curiosity, can you quantify like the size of the collection, maybe both physical and digital? In my mind, I'm imagining just a huge warehouse full of, you know, physical things and then probably hundreds of terabytes of digital information that you have to sift through. Is that an accurate assessment? Uh, it is. The, the collection as a whole um, is probably eight to 10,000 cubic feet. So a cubic foot would be like a, a records box. Um, the, the digital data, so it's a hard question to answer because we're sitting on about 20 terabytes of unique data. That, does, that doesn't include everything we've got stored in the cloud. Um, and, and, and volume's kind of difficult. Partially, I haven't done the math in a number of years to, to figure it out. Yeah. But, but I think one of the things people don't understand about digitizing archives is 
say I've got a, a, a 15 minute film from 1950 and it's 16 millimeter, it's sitting on the shelf. Um, we've got uh, environmental storage, so temperature and humidity. So it's relatively stable. It'll last 100 years, 200 years, depending on the environment. But it's kind of passive. I don't have to do anything, right? Well, now I digitize it. So I'm creating two to three digital versions of that film that are all different sizes. Now we're, we're creating redundant storage in multiple locations for backups. Now all of a sudden, I've got six assets that I've got to manage and backup daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly. We do our backups in different locations. So now all of a sudden that one asset is a pretty active um, job where before it kind of sat on a shelf and I didn't have to do anything. So that's, I think people don't put those pieces together when they say, why don't you scan everything? It's like, well, uh, you know, if I just went into your house and said, well, let's just quadruple the, everything that you have and, and you get to deal with that now. Also, you have to audit it every year to make sure that all the digital stuff works because digital files are much more fragile than the analog because I've got environmental kind of precautions I've taken. Uh, the digital, I, your software is going to go out of date, right? Every time your phone updates, some things aren't going to work. Bits and bytes aren't going to go together. So now you're auditing, you're migrating, you're doing all these things. So as a result of that, um, the way I often say it is uh, we, we, we keep a lot less. There's, there's just a lot more of it <laughs> because now there's duplicates on top of duplicates on top of duplicates that you got to string along to manage the original. So Neil, you, you, when you were talking about your, your story, you know, how you're interested in museums, that really resonated with me because that's kind of how I am too, how I've always been. I like to go learn about things. I like to learn about science. I like to learn about history. And there's a lot of other people out there like that. What advice would you have for a student who's interested in a career like yours? Is there any specific advice you would give? Yeah, I'd say start by, by volunteering. I, I, I know, especially when I talk to students, I kind of have a, a slide where I have two columns. One is my, my career, which is very linear. Of I went from technical services archivist doing like basic conservation work to a reference archivist where I was doing research to different kind of subsets of, of archives. And then on the right, I have the 50 volunteer things that I did to figure out what I liked and the type of work. Our archival work can be very, it can be very lonely meaning long hours of concentration, things that don't sound that exciting, like labeling vial folders, believe it or not. It's, it's organization. Like, do you like to organize your closet or are you a slob? If you're a slob, maybe archives is not something for you. <laughs> but, you know, go to your local historical society and like, do you like getting into the records, organizing them, making them available to other people? Sometimes that's a different skill set than having a love for history. And, and I like to think of things in terms of, of skills. But there's lots of different versions of kind of being an, an archivist. Museums are an entirely different animal. Libraries are an entirely different animal as well. So I think if you have a love of history um, and looking back, there's lots of different things you can do with it. So just kind of go out and explore. Well, Neil, I wanted to ask you about your book. But before we get into that, could you tell us a little bit, of, like from a high level, kind of the origin story of John Deere? And if that is best tied into your book, feel free to you know, tie that into your book as well. <laughs> yeah, happy to do that. Um, John Deere was born in Vermont in 1804. He was a, a blacksmith, served a four-year apprenticeship 
Um, I know often the story is told, well, John Deere had no formal education. And I kind of push back and say, yeah, four-year apprenticeship is a pretty formal education in my book. But um, he, he, he was a, a blacksmith, uh, moved to Illinois over the winter of 1836-1837 to what today we call the Midwest. It was the edge of the frontier at that period in time. And uh, he was just looking for a fresh start. We don't have a lot of details of the creation of his first steel plow, but he did that in 1837. And that's, that's kind of the foundation of the company. And it was very much a case of John Deere was a frontier entrepreneur. He built that first plow. Um, a, a customer picked it up, tested it. There's a couple of different versions of the story. The one that I think makes the most sense is the customer said, I'm going to take it. And if it works, I'm going to come back and, and I'm going to order two more. Um, we know Deere built two more the following year. So all the pieces come together. But he spent the next decade trying to build a plow business. And that was really the foundations of the company, eventually leading him to move to Moline from, from Grand Detour in 1848. And, and so Deere is still headquartered in, in Moline, Illinois today. So he was obviously very successful in that. I mean, he founded what became a huge company. What was it about his plows that were unique? Well, there are a couple things, and, and, and it's really a combination of the plows and who he was as a person and, and how he built the business. Um, so those initial plows were, were built of steel, but he couldn't get any more steel. It was not, not common. We know in the late 1840s, he started ordering slab steel from Sheffield, England, which is a pretty big deal in the 1840s. He was one of over 2,000 plow companies in the United States wow. in the 1850s and 60s. Wow. But there started to be this kind of transition from the East to um, um, the, the Midwest. And that really followed just the migration of the U.S. population. Gold's found in California in 1848. Over the next decade, people are moving. So it wasn't a case of he built a steel plow in 1837. And then from there on out, he built steel plows. It was build steel plows, build plows of whatever material you could get. So how do you build a business? And, and one of the things that is often surprising to people is early on, John Deere was, was building plows. And then as his operation grew, he was actually the head salesman. So he was the one in the field. He was actually wow. traveling to customers and farmers, uh, pitching the merits of his plow. And that's really where he built his reputation. And um, we're, we're fortunate because there was, there was a lawsuit in the late 1860s and early 1870s. So there were a lot of depositions taken and people talking about how when they were buying a John Deere plow, they were buying a plow from John Deere because they trusted him. And I think that's where he really built his business. Uh, I think another good indication of how he went about his business was he didn't receive his first patent until 1864. So that's 27 years after he built that first plow. And the patent is not for the plow, it's for a process because he wanted to make them all the same level of quality. Um, and that's how we kind of looked at things that, that he was, he was selling quality and there's lots of stories of, of him visiting customers and making suggestions, him coming back, working something out and then delivering something new. So it was very much not a one size fits all operation. And I th think that's where he really grew his operation. From my perspective, thinking about kind of the evolution of the company, there's, there's these kind of eras and, and John Deere as a frontier uh, entrepreneur is one of them. Uh, the next kind of major era, I think, for kind of the transformation of John Deere as a company 
is the early 20th century. The culmination is the um, acquisition of the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company and John Deere's entry into the tractor business. And, and that's really the, the foundation for this book, Tractor Wars, is, well, how did John Deere get into that business? Was it speculative? Was it a good idea at the time? And I was trying to answer a couple questions. And, and, and one was, I guess, more of a statement than a question people would say to me over the years, John Deere was late into the tractor business. And I would say, well, I don't know that that's true. <laughs> um, but, you know, you kind of read, you read things and you regurgitate things. And then there was this, this letter that's always bugged me from, from our CEO, William Butterworth, where he very specifically says, I'm opposed to any development of the tractor. And just over the years, I thought, well, that doesn't seem right because he was funding R&D in tractor development. So how can you fund it and be opposed to it at the same time? And, and just over the years, those things have bothered me so much that I finally spent five years trying to find answers. And, and, and that's what turned into to Tractor Wars, this book. Interesting. And this is not your first book, right? You've written a couple other books. Yeah, this is my, my third book. Um, I, uh, but it's been 17 years since the last one. So okay. the world's changed a little wow. bit since then. It's been a while. The last <laughs> one was a biography of John and Charles Deere called The John Deere Story. And so this book very much picks up where that one left off in 1907. That's fascinating. And I think, you know, starting to, to read your book and, and that history of how, as you mentioned, John Deere wasn't necessarily first into the game in the tractor development. So do you want to just kind of start at the beginning and kind of, you know, obviously we don't have time to, to talk about every detail of the book, but, you know, give us kind of a high level of uh, kind of what people's appetite, so to speak, so they can go pick up the book and read the whole thing. Yeah, I'd love to. It's th this book, I, I'm smiling because it's kind of funny. I, I've, I think that this, this topic found me versus me going out and looking for it. And, and I guess it just kind of wore me down and I finally decided, yeah, I'm going to figure this out. But, but again, you know, I look at things from a, a John Deere lens, but when I, I started really deciding that I thought this could be a book, I wasn't sure if John Deere fit or not. So that was a weird kind of starting point because I, I, I know the evolution of the John Deere tractor. I know that John Deere was distributing tractors in the 1890s. You know, I knew at the acquisition of, of um, the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company in, in, in 1918, that started with the Freilich tractor in 1892, the first successful gasoline tractor, which meant it went forwards and backwards. Didn't mean it was a commercial success because it wasn't. And so there's all these kind of strings attached to what's first and who did what when. But I knew John Deere had a 20-year track record in tractors before buying Waterloo. So that, that really piqued my curiosity. Um, but I knew International Harvester was an early leader. I was really interested in the transition from steam to gasoline and how that came to be. And then you throw Henry Ford into the mix, who by the mid-1920s had 75% market share and really accelerated the industry. Um, I was really confused at why John Deere was still building tractors and then Henry Ford wasn't in the early er, in the early 1930s. And so you kind of throw all those things into the mix. Um, I, I really started looking at the data, which was in 1908, there were five or six tractor manufacturers um, who qualified as one and who didn't and what's the definition of a tractor. So you get in all of those things, but the industry was only a few thousand tractors. Um, 
And then 20 years later, the industry's cranking out 200,000 machines. Um, and there's 150 competitors. And then 10 years later, there's only a handful left. So, you know, these ups and downs, peaks and valleys really intrigued me just from a business perspective. And that's all about technology introduction, adoption, competition, all things that we're thinking about today and talking about today. Um, and it also very much paralleled the, the automobile industry that was just picking up. And so I kind of threw all that into the mix and let the story kind of drive this, you know, because you, you're, you, you ask questions like, okay, well, Hart Parr was, was one of the early leaders in the tractor industry. How did they go away? Like what didn't work? Um, so that was a lot of what I was trying to get at and kind of follow the story. And that's how I landed on John Deere International Harvester and Henry Ford. And then from my perspective, I'm very interested in the personalities because machines are one thing, but at the end of the day, machines are envisioned by, designed by, built by, and sold by people. So who are the personalities? Who are the people? Who are the engineers, the designers, um, the leaders at these companies that are making decisions? And, and that is what a lot of this book is about. What's going on behind the scenes? Who's making a decision in the boardroom to not build the farm all in 1920 because that's a decision International Harvester made in 1920 because they couldn't afford to build it. So how would the world be different if three years later they didn't throw a little money here and a little money there to allow Burt Benjamin to, to develop the farm all a little more? Same way with John Deere. John Deere was dedicated to the all-wheel drive tractor, the, the Dane, as a lot of people know it. That was supposed to be Deere's first production tractor in 1918. Instead, there was only 100 built, and we bought the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company instead. Um, that's after six or seven years of research and development, market analysis, figuring out if the tractor was a passing fad or not, um, or if power farming was actually something that farmers would adopt because they didn't know. And that's part of this. Well, deer was late, and, and I very much would argue not late, probably just smart. <laughs> Because being first and going bankrupt probably isn't a strategy that you want to follow, right? <laughs> that didn't work out for some of the companies. Exactly. So you, exactly. Mentioned, you mentioned Henry Ford. You said he had about 75% of the market at one point. So what happened there? I mean, I mean, he was very successful, obviously, with his cars and obviously with the tractors to a point. But there must have been some shift in dynamics or John Deere overtook him or what happened there? Yeah, there's Henry, Henry Ford's Model T came out in in October of 1908. In November, he, he sent a photo and a short letter to the Farm Implement News, an industry publication, and said, I'm developing a farm tractor. And no one really noticed because no one knew who Henry Ford was. Six months later, everyone knew who Henry Ford was. And the, the, the automobile kind of became a, a distraction for him because his lifelong dream he grew up on a farm outside of Detroit. He wanted to build a farm tractor. He was obsessed with them. And so he, he often talked about overcoming drudgery and how he just didn't understand farmers because they would not adopt any sort of new technology whatsoever because they were so traditional. And he put up his own money. He developed the farm tractor. Um, World War I kind of got in his way. He brokered a deal to ship his first tractors to the British government. 
So it wasn't until 1918 when the Fordson actually debuted on, on American soil. But he adopted the same principles that he did with the Model T, which is one size fits all. We're going to build it on the assembly line. We're going to sell it cheaper than everybody else. And he did that. And farmers started adopting uh, the Fordson tractor. It was called Fordson because the Ford Motor Company wouldn't let him build it. He had to do it on his own and form a separate company because they said there's, there's no money in, in farm tractors. Um, so, you know, John Deere wasn't the only one going, yeah, we don't know if there's a business here. Um, Edsel Ford later said that they lost a hundred dollars on the sale of every Fordson tractor. Um, but when you're one of the richest people in the world, you can shoulder that burden. And looking into the future, obviously, I mean, to the, to the time when tractors cost in excess of a hundred thousand dollars, obviously there's, there's money to be made in manufacturing tractors at this point. Yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're exactly. <laughs> Major spoiler alert. Well, I've got a lot of grief and, and this, this is a spoiler alert, but uh, anyone who knows tractors won't, won't be surprised. Henry Ford more or less dropped out in 1928. And he went from almost 75% market share to just declining market share from about 1925 through 1928. Well, the bigger picture is that he was hemorrhaging market share in the automobile business because the industry grew up around him and nobody wanted the Model T anymore. And so he had to make some decisions about the automobile empire, which he couldn't fully do if he was still um, losing money on the farm tractor. And, and so he just kind of very quietly packed up the, the tractor factory and shipped it to Cork, Ireland, where he'd build another factory. And so production went from over 100,000 machines to a couple thousand the following year. And then just one day everyone woke up and the Ford tractor was gone and international harvester and John Deere and a couple others who were left said, okay, thank you. But they had also <laughs> built their production around the expectation that Ford was going to drop out. And so they were kind of playing the, the, the long game. And that just had to do with what those companies were about. John Deere and, and harvester their objective was to build what they called a full line, which is we're going to build everything a farmer needs on their farm. And we understand that every farm is different. Um, you know, geographically, the size of your operation, the, the type of crops you're growing, weather, all of those things. Uh, and we understand that we just can't build one machine because it's just not going to do. We just can't scale in that way. Henry Ford went that direction. And by 1928, it wasn't working anymore. And that's kind of the middle part of the book, which is you go from the, uh, you know, harvesters, you kind of start with the Titans and the moguls, and then you evolve into um, what becomes the McCormick Deering line, the 1020s and 1530s, and then the Farmall. And Deere goes from the Waterloo boy, um, R very early to the N, to the D, to the GP. So you start to see the evolution of machine forms. And Henry Ford's still saying, remember that fortune you bought in 1918? Same one I'm selling in 1927. And, and customers are very sophisticated now and they're going, yeah, we're not, we're not buying it figuratively and literally. So, you know, the industry changes, the, the market changes, the customer changes. And so who evolves with that? That's kind of the cliffhanger because we all know Henry Ford returns <laughs> and he returns in a big way in, in a couple of years. Yeah. I've got about 30 more questions, but I think we'll leave it at that cliffhanger regarding the book and uh, yeah, encourage our listeners to 
to dive in. One random thing I was kind of interested in is the John Deere logo and how that's evolved over time. Can you speak to that? Yeah, I can. It's the, the, the leaping deer has been with us, um, since 1876. We know it was used prior to that, but, um, it was trademarked in 1876. It's the oldest continuously used trademark by a fortune 500 company in the world. Um, there, there's not been a, a lot of different versions of it. Um, the, the current trademark's been in use since 2000, I believe. And uh, kind of the, the fun fact is it's the first leaping deer where the deer is actually leaping upwards. And, and, and one of the reasons behind that was we're a company um, uh, in, in its ascendancy. Um, you don't want a deer leaping down on the decline because we're not a company that's going that direction. And so it's just kind of one of those fine nice. details. And, and um, so, yeah, it's been with us. And, and one thing that I think most people don't know is that John Deere himself actually had a hand in that first stencil. And, and it, was, it was designed as a way to differ, differentiate John Deere plows from a competitor plow that um, adopted the same name as, as Deere. Deere. Deere was calling his plows the Moline Plow. The Moline Plow Company was formed and called their plows the Moline Plow as well. And so Deere needed a reason or a way to differentiate the two, the two products. And that's where the, the leaping deer uh, came from. That's, that's really interesting that you mentioned that it's, it's, it's been leaping up since 2000. Yeah. Uh, I have looked at a lot of John Deere tractors over the years from all different vintages and all different John Deere things. And I never noticed that there was a change in the trajectory of the deer. Yeah. <laughs> interesting. Neil, you mentioned, you know, early on John Deere kind of differentiated itself on the quality of the product, you know, going all the way back to the plow. I'm sure some of those strands of, you know, quality and differentiation, you know, hold true today, but there, is there something today that, how does John Deere want to be seen today? Are there some of those trends from the past that are still reflected today? Yeah. I, I, yeah. I think, I think we're very much a, a company still that's, I mean, we're, we're rooted in kind of the finding founding principles of, of, of the company and, and, and quality is one of those, um, innovation is, is a core value of ours going back to that first steel plow. Um, but, but John Deere is very much, um, what, what today is called a smart industrial company, um, which is, you're still a company that builds heavy iron, right? Like it's rugged, it's durable, um, high quality products, but they got to be smart because at the end of the day, what hasn't changed from 1837 to today is you want to be more productive, right? Um, you, you want greater yields and, and you want greater profitability. Um, that hasn't changed in a, 185 years and Deere's very much focused on that with, with its products. And, and I think that's always core to whatever machine forms are um, whether we're talking grain binders in 1912 or farm tractors in 1923 or, you know, a 4010 in 1963 or an 8000 series tractor that, you know, and, and, and now looking at autonomy, it's, it's how, how are you more productive? How are you more profitable? How are you doing more with less, um, kind of these macro trends that we always talk about growing population, um, uh, less, less labor, maybe less acreage. It's still with us. Bill Hewitt, our CEO in the 1960s was talking about it. We were talking about it in the seventies. 
William Butterworth in, in 1919 was talking about whether or not we should build gasoline tractors or kerosene tractors because he was worried of increasing gasoline costs, <laughs> something that, that we can relate to. And so, you know, those are all things that have been with us for a long time. But, but I, I think really what's changed o- over history is everything's accelerated. I think the time period between product releases continues to get shorter and shorter and shorter. There, there's more competition from more places. And so you very much have to be in the mode of you have to disrupt your own businesses instead of letting someone else do it for you. And, and I think that's a mindset that's been around for a long time. Just a lot of people don't talk about it probably. Neil, I think you've already kind of started to answer this question, but we always like to kind of, as we get to the end of the podcast, to look to the future a little bit and, and see what, you know, kind of use your crystal ball. And I think you're uniquely qualified to kind of pre- maybe not predict the future, but to, to look ahead because having such an understanding of the past, you, you've seen how things have turned out in the past. So what is really most exciting to you about the future of agriculture? What, what's really exciting for me is that I have no idea um, for, for one thing, but what, what's exciting a, about it is, you know, you can look at it from the standpoint of, well, this is what a, this is what a tractor is going to look like in 50 years. And, and I think we can all envision tractors, like why would a tractor have a cab in 50 years? But also why does a tractor even look like a tractor in 50 years? Maybe they all look the same. Um, it's, it's what's underneath it that, that matters. And they, they may be small, you know? And so I, I think I, I kind of go kind of tactically to, well, I can envision instead of me having, um, you know, a, a 400 horsepower tractor, I got a hundred four horsepower tractors, <laughs> you know, crawling a field or something, but they're really, really smart. Um, so maybe it's micro farms instead of large farms. So I, I think it's fun to kind of think about those things. What, what, what I think is most important is you can't decide too early what it looks like because that gets in the way. And, and I think about um, deer had experimental farms in the early 20th century. And so in, in the 1920s, we were doing some experimentation with electrification. I don't know what the details are of that, but they, they kind of talked about it a little bit. Um, we had a, a, the head of our soil culture department, we call him an agronomist today, um, talked about uh, moisture extractors in harvesting equipment. That was 13 years before we introduced our first combine, our first, you know, and so you, you think about, you got to think really far ahead. And then at some point it, it's not very far ahead anymore. And I think that's, what's really cool and really exciting about it is everything's on the table. So how do you actually draw those things back so that it actually makes sense that people are going to adopt it and embrace it. And then, um, kind of innovate from there. We use that word innovation a lot, but how do you kind of refine it over times? Um, I think the most important thing is that we recognize, and, and I see this historically, change is the only constant and it's seems obvious, but the number of times I talk to people say, well, it wasn't like that, you know, 40 years ago. And I said, no, it was way worse. It was happened way faster than you could imagine. Um, I think we have this mindset of, well, people had, they got hired, they did the same job for 30 years. And, and I go, yeah, that wasn't a thing. It wasn't a thing in 1920. It wasn't a thing in 1970. It's just easier for our brains to wrap ourselves around that notion that things were constant and stable. 
and it, and it, and it, it was, it never was that way. Um, so that's a long-winded answer to what I see in the future, but what I see is just shorter cycles, um, a lot of kind of embracing of change and then moving on to the next thing. But at the end of the day, you're always kind of holding on to some core kind of foundational beliefs um, that are, are going to drive all of that. So it all makes sense and it works. I think it's interesting that you mentioned things getting smaller, potentially equipment getting smaller because Preston and I have done some work with looking at UAVs to apply crop production products. We've, we spoke with Chinmay Soman, who was, who is a uh, builds robots that go through fields and collect data. You know, we've kind of explored this in, in a few different podcasts. And um, I think it's really interesting that when we go more autonomous, we don't need to have those economies of scale quite as much in, in that we don't need a big giant 400 horsepower tractor. As you mentioned, we can have maybe 104 horsepower tractors. I think, I think it's a really interesting concept and it's not something maybe that a lot of farmers can envision right now, but it'll be interesting 10 years, 20 years down the road and really see what it looks like. Cause as you mentioned, it'll definitely look different than it does today. Yeah. I think it's also interesting to look back at some of the ideas that come around again. I mean, the, 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 the gasoline automobile started with everyone building battery powered automobiles and electric automobiles <laughs> in the early 20th century. And it just wasn't feasible and didn't, didn't work. Hydrogen tractors in the, in the, in the fifties and sixties and, and those sorts of things, some of those things come around again for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's, it's because there's just no market for adoption. Maybe the technology is not quite there yet, but, but as we think about the future, often it's, it's kind of the recycling of things from 50 or hundred years ago, um, just the environments right now. And there's external forces acting on it, or there's infrastructure that's developed now that didn't exist before that drives some of that as well. And as you mentioned before, timing is always very important. You, you talked early, early in the conversation about uh, developing the first tractor isn't necessarily the best thing if you go out of business first. Um, but, you know, some of those ideas that maybe their time wasn't quite there, maybe the time has come for some of those ideas. Absolutely. One more quick question for you, Neil. When you look at past John Deere tractors, do you have a favorite? The 40, 20, 7, 30? If you had to pick one, uh, what would be your favorite? Do, do I have a favorite? That's the hardest question I've ever been asked. <laughs> um, nice job, for, Preston. You I have a 730. Jason's <laughs> a 4020 guy, so. Yeah. Well, well it, it's a hard question because I don't, I don't come from a farming background. Um, and, you know, so I didn't grow up on a particular machine. And oftentimes someone's favorite is because I learned on this or I, right. I drove this. Um, for, for me, boy. I probably go back to my, my favorite is probably that that all wheel drive the Dane that there, there were not between 90 and hundred built. Okay. Uh, it's partially because of Joe Dane who designed it and, and also kind of the tragedy that he never saw it come to, to fruition. He died uh, in late October of 1917. And the first one was completed in April of 1918. So it was kind of, kind of the dream unrealized yeah. for him. Um, but also it's a very confusing machine because it's a four cylinder tractor that led to the two cylinder era of the John Deere tractor. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it kind of turns everything on its head that everybody knows about John Deere. And uh, there's just a lot of great mystery. There's a lot of great mythology around it about the mach- a lot of the machines being scrapped or buried and, 
and, and, and I just love the mythology around it. I hope somebody just digs one up one day or whatever, but um, it's just an era that is fascinating to me because there's a lot of things that happen and a lot of, a lot of things still that we don't know about it. So that one also, we, we own one it's sitting in the John Deere pavilion. So that's super cool. As I was wondering, are there still some of them around? Yeah, there's, there's that one. There's, there's one owned by a collector club that's largely intact. And there's actually someone who's fabricating one from scratch. Oh, wow. They, they found basically um, a couple parts and uh, they're refabricating it. So oh, if someone's cool. willing to do that, that's kind of a big deal. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Well, Neil, we appreciate your time here with the podcast today. For the folks who want to learn more about you, John Deere, and maybe get in contact with uh, you from a social media standpoint, is there somewhere they can go to, to reach out? Yeah, I'm really easy to find. Uh, my website's neildahlstrom.com, and, and, and I'm on, on, on Twitter and Facebook. Facebook's author, Neil Dahlstrom. And uh, I encourage everyone to go to the, the John Deere Pavilion, the John Deere Tractor and Engine Museum in Waterloo where we've got a lot of company-owned machines, but machines on loan from, from customers and collectors. And uh, if you want to learn about John Deere himself, the John Deere historic site, you can uh, walk through the house that John Deere built. You can see a blacksmith demonstration. Um, it's, it's a step back in time, and it's a really, really special place. Yeah, that's really cool. I, I don't think I've been there for maybe 35 years, but I did, do remember going there as a kid. Yeah, we have, a, we have a brand new exhibit uh, in the museum, which includes the archaeological excavation of John Deere's shop. Well, Neil, thank you again for your time. This has been great. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.